So going through the comments in our recent posts, uh, I got a question here from Guy Dudebro. And first things first, uh, that is a really, really cool YouTube name. That is pretty awesome. And and if that's your real name, bro, clearly you win. That's That's awesome. Well, Guy asks this question. It's actually a little bit of pushback on something I had said in uh, a recent prophecy brief regarding the red heifer in Israel. And uh, it was actually in a chain of comments uh, where I had been responding to someone regarding this topic uh, uh, that is going to come up in this question. So let me read it. Uh, Could you please take a moment and cite your chapter and verse where you claim Yeshua says he did away with the Torah? Seriously, I believe that you are mistaken and deceived. The Savior said, I come not to do away with the law, but to fulfill. You can't actually be translating that to say, I come not to do away with the law, but to do away with the law, right? If we know that 1 John 3, 4 states that sin is a violation of the Torah or the law, uh, then there would be no such thing as sin anymore. Uh, Knowing this, how does any of your argument make sense, respectfully? I also would caution you against rebutting with Paul, uh, Paul's writings, as he is the only author in Scripture that comes uh, with a warning of being easily misconstrued to one's detriment. Uh, the last part, I assume, is in reference to Peter talking about how challenging uh, Paul's writings can be. Although he does consider in that very statement Paul's writings to be on par with Scripture. He, he considers them uh, as being additional Scripture in, in regard to, uh, in connection with that which has come before. Um, okay, well, that is a good question. And by the way, I also really appreciate uh, uh, both the passion that you bring the question with and also the respect that you bring it with. I think that's just a productive way to engage on things. So let me go ahead and give it my best shot here in regard to uh, this. Now, the passage that Guy is uh, referencing here in, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17, and I'm going to read 17 and 18. Uh, Do not think, this is Jesus speaking in the Sermon on the Mount, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Uh, And so that clearly is what Jesus had to say. The idea that he did not come to destroy the law, or as the term literally means to dissolve or you know, to uh, to discard the law, to set it aside, uh, you know, that he didn't come to do that, but rather he came to fulfill it. Now, I'll start by just asking a kind of a rhetorical question, because we would all know the answer to this. But if something is fulfilled, say an obligation, it's a good parallel when we talk about the law. If an obligation is fulfilled, how much is left of that obligation to fulfill? None, because it's fulfilled, right? It's, it's, we often uh, speak of grace and, and the finality of Christ's work and these ideas. We oftentimes give a uh, an illustration um, uh, based on like paying off a mortgage. You know, if uh, if you had a mortgage that was two hundred thousand dollars left on it, and uh, somebody came along and paid it, and the mortgage was now paid in full, how much of that mortgage would you continue to make monthly payments on? Well, the answer is, of course, none, because there's nothing left to pay. You'd be foolish to think that you're somehow contributing to something that's already been paid for. And so it's that same concept that I bring to bear on this, this idea that the finished work of Christ is exactly that. And by the way, this is a topic that, uh, number one, I never tire of talking about because I think it is uh, arguably the central issue in in regard to our faith, understanding the, the difference between law and grace and the place of the law in Scripture, not just in the New Testament, but even in our understanding of it in the Old Testament. 
Um, and so, um, with that said, let me again kind of make my way through this now. Of course, again, Jesus did not come to discard or to dissolve or to uh, destroy the law, but rather he came to fulfill it. So it's not that the law has been discarded. It's not that the law doesn't have any place or purpose anymore. It's just that it has been satisfied in the righteous offering of Christ, in the complete, thorough, pervasive, finished work of Christ. And so therefore, the law does not serve the purpose that many people, and let me interject the word here, mistakenly think it ever was meant to serve. Uh, and this is where we do get into Paul. Uh, and, and though, uh, again, there's clearly that admonition on Peter's part of that, not admonition so much as just statement that some of Paul's writings are difficult to understand, nevertheless, we should read them. And I would argue that while some of these things are difficult to understand, Peter didn't say you couldn't understand them. It just requires rigor, it requires study, it requires comparing Scripture with Scripture and getting into the language and understanding the concepts uh, in, a, in as pervasive a way as we can in, in light of the entire Scripture. So that is what we try to do. And that's that's what, I, of course, I think that, you know, especially anyone who teaches on any level, whether you're, whether you're a pastor, a home Bible study teacher, whatever it might be, um, you know, the, the admonition on Paul's part to rightly divide or cut straight the Word of God is the is an admonition for us. And so we want to make sure if we touch on any of these subjects, we do so after considering them as thoroughly as we possibly can. Now, again, when Jesus said, I didn't come to discard, destroy, dissolve the law, he did come, it did go on to say that he came to fulfill it. In other words, he ultimately came to satisfy or to complete that which was required of the law. Now, here's where an understanding of the purpose of the law becomes very important. And by the way, I'm going to point out here at this point, that when we talk about sort of, um, uh, and I'm not saying that Guy is necessarily saying that Paul's words are at odds with Christ's words, but maybe the challenge is just understanding Paul's words in light of what uh, uh, what the rest of Scripture may say or what uh, Christ had accomplished in that. Um, let me say this, that when, uh, first off, Jesus handpicked Paul uh, as, as, as a, an apostle, you know, uh, born in due time, as Paul would refer to himself, but he ultimately was handpicked by Jesus himself. Uh, in Acts chapter nine, we see this when he goes to Ananias's house and, uh, Jesus tells Ananias that this Saul of Tarsus, who will become better known as Paul, uh, is somebody who he has, uh, given a mission to stand before kings and Gentiles and the nation of Israel and that. And so he's going to testify of the gospel. And this gospel, by the, before all these people groups, between all people, basically, before all people, but also the gospel that Paul shared was, as he said in Galatians chapter 1, it was not of man, but in fact, Jesus himself taught Paul this gospel. Um, not that the, not that, you know, any part of scripture was by man per se, but, but Paul is saying, like, I didn't just make this up. This is something that was divinely given to me by no less than Christ himself. And so we see that in Galatians chapter 1, that he did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, but rather for three years he spent uh, time off in Arabia there, and, and presumably that is the time when he uh, is referring to when Jesus taught him the gospel. And so uh, so Paul is, is, of course, as at preeminent an authority on the gospel as any of the disciples would have been. Uh, certainly having written a third of the New Testament with the intention that we would come to understand the word. We study it so that we would understand and ultimately apply it. Uh, I, I now move into what Paul had to say about these things. And so um, it is interesting that in Ephesians chapter 2, and, and by the way, if uh, if you're so inclined, we are going through Ephesians on Sunday mornings, and those 
studies are posted on our YouTube page and also on my website at parsonspad.com and on our church's website, calvarychapelfranklin.com. We are also going through on this podcast a verse-by-verse study in the book of Romans. It's actually been a few weeks since we've been in it, but we are making our way, and we're in Romans chapter 9 right now, which is to say that we have spent a lot of time uh, up to this point already talking about some of these subjects. So if it's of any value to you, I'd encourage you to go ahead and uh, take a look at those. But let me invite you to look at Ephesians chapter 2 in verse 15, because Paul, again, a rabbi who, if anyone knew the law, Paul knew the law. And if anyone knew the gospel, Paul knew the gospel. And so in his own experience, background, and knowledge of the law, and his own having been taught the gospel by Christ himself, and I I guess I would also add, by virtue of having spent many, many years uh, in the faith, walking with Jesus, by the time he wrote the letter to Ephesians, which is one of his prison epistles. So this is now toward the end of Paul's life and the end of his ministry. He has spent a lot of time considering these things, and of course, uh, this is divinely inspired truth. But he says this, Uh, In verse uh, 14 and 15, um, actually, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to read, um, yeah, I'll just read these two verses. Maybe that'll be enough for us here. But um, of course, as always, read the entire passage so we understand the context. But in verse 14 of chapter 2 in Ephesians, Paul says this, For he himself is our peace who has made the both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. He's speaking now of Jews and Gentiles, that which divided them has now been taken out of the way, or as he'll say in a moment, abolished. And we'll talk about what that is here as he continues. Uh, This wall of separation between them, this middle wall, has been taken out of the way, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments uh, contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. So the idea of abolishing there means to render inoperative. In other words, that which once was operating is now no longer operating. What is he talking about? Well, he's talking about first and foremost, the enmity between these two groups. Uh, If we read the sentence again, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the first thing, the first level that he's talking about there. Uh, That which separated Jew and Gentile. Well, what was that that separated Jew and Gentile? It was the law. The fact that the Jews had the law and they, to the best of their you know, knowledge and their, 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 their own belief about themselves, were keeping it. And the Gentiles who were without the law, which again, Paul in Romans spoke quite a bit about. But the Gentiles without the law were dogs. They were the outside. They were the goyim and this kind of thing, the nations on the outside. Uh, but in fact, the enmity, that which caused the enmity, which he goes on to say here, is the law of commandments contained in ordinances has now been rendered inoperative. Now, this is where an understanding of the purpose of the law is vital. Uh, Most people, uh, and I I fit into this category before I was born again, before I knew Jesus, and that is that I believed that if I kept the law, and of course, in my shallow thinking on that, that just meant the Ten Commandments— There are 613 commandments. There are many, many civil and religious ceremonial laws and such that that make up the body that is called the law. Uh, And then there's, of course, Jesus said, income to abolish the law and the prophets. In other words, the writings of the Old Testament ultimately find their fulfillment and satisfaction in Christ and his finished work. But Paul here refers to this, the idea of the law, as being that which separated Jew and Gentile. And Jesus has now taken it out of the way, or he has rendered inoperative that which caused the division between the two. Is it because he destroyed the law? No. It's A, because he fulfilled it, but it also, again, is instrumental for us to understand what the law's purpose was. And for this, I'll invite you to turn back 
to the book of Galatians in chapter 3. Again, Paul writing here to a group of churches in the region of Galatia where he speaks to this very issue. And I'm going to go ahead and invite you to look with me at verses 16. Uh, Let's see, what should I go through here? I guess I probably should look to about uh, verse 25. Uh, Again, read the whole chapter, but for for our time's sake, let me just read from here. Verse 16 uh, in Galatians chapter 3, Paul gives a uh, a, a wonderful exposition of what the law was ultimately for. Now, to Abraham it is seed where the promise is made. It does not say, and to seeds as a many, but as of one, and to your seed who is Christ. In other words, Paul is saying that the promise that God made to the seed of Abraham was not to the offspring of Abraham collectively as the body of people that were born ultimately of the 12 tribes, uh, Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob and Jacob's 12 sons and, and ultimately becoming the nation. It was not to the people of the nation per se, but it was specifically given to the eternal word become flesh, Christ himself, the son. The idea being that the promise is made to the son and therefore it is not restricted just to the people of Israel, but to all who would come by faith. And that is the point that Paul goes on to make. And this I say that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ that it should make the promise of no effect. Now, what's interesting is that early in Paul's ministry, he writes these words. Later in Paul's ministry, he writes the words that we read in Ephesians. He essentially is saying this, that uh, in, in connection with what Jesus himself had to say, Christ did not come to cast off the law, but rather to fulfill it. What Paul is saying here in Galatians is that the law itself did not nullify the covenant that had previously been made by grace righteousness by faith, by God's grace. Uh, The law did not cancel that. It did not, like that's what the word annul basically means when we talk about a marriage being annulled. Uh, uh, The idea is that a marriage is as though it had never happened. It is canceled as though there were no binding connections with it or anything. Well, the law did not do that to grace. Grace came first And then the law came to serve its purpose, which we'll read about here in just a second. But Paul goes on. Well, we'll come back to what Paul said in Romans about that. But let me finish the passage here Uh, again in verse uh, 17. This I say that the law, which was 430 years later, could not annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. What purpose then does the law serve? Now, here we go. Uh, I often say that Galatians chapter 3, Paul tells us the why of the law. We can look at the entire Old Testament and see what the law and the prophets and the writings all are. Here, Paul tells us why. Why was the law given? If in fact, the, if in fact the promise is by faith to the seed of Abraham that is then received by faith uh, by anyone who come to believe like Abraham did, <clears throat> then why the law? What's the purpose of the law? That is a fantastic question. And here we go. Paul answers it. What purpose then does the law serve? Or what purpose then the law? Why was the law given? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now, a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not, for if there had been a law given which could give which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But of course, if we know in Galatians chapter two, 
uh, verse 21, he says, I don't set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. There is no law that can ultimately bring righteousness. But Scripture has confirmed that all are under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, this is important because all of us are born in sin. We're under the federal headship of Adam, our our first father, our the first Adam. And so since that is the case, we enter into life at a deficit that we can never, uh, that is insurmountable, we can't overcome. And so therefore, it is not through righteous activity that we are made righteous, but rather it is by belief, trust, faith in the promise as given through the person of Christ ultimately. And so therefore, but uh, verse 23, but before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept uh, uh, for the faith, which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. So in other words, the purpose of the law was essentially to do two things. One, it was to demonstrate our inability to keep it. None of us can keep the law. Like Paul said in Romans 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Nobody has ever gotten through life with a perfect track record. And and if that weren't ludicrous and impossible enough, the fact that we enter life at a deficit means nobody has ever. It's not just that we have sinned, we are sinners. And so therefore, nobody has been made righteous by their own acts and deeds, uh, obedience to the law or anything. The second thing is then to point us, the law is to point us to the person of Christ, to be a tutor or a schoolmaster, as some various translations uh, speak of it. The idea is one who keeps us walking between the lines. It's like we are walking in a particular direction. I'm using the sort of the screen here as the thing here, the lines. But uh, the idea that we walk between the lines and where do those lines lead us? Where does that path lead us to, that narrow road? It leads us to the person of Christ. And so that is the purpose of the law, both to help us understand we can't keep it, and also to recognize who it is that that we need to put our faith and trust in, who incidentally did keep the law perfectly. He fulfilled it. He satisfied it again, as he, as he spoke of in, in Matthew chapter 5. Now, what Paul is speaking about here in Galatians regard, in regard to um, the law doesn't, you know, grace doesn't destroy the law, the law doesn't destroy grace, the idea of these two, these two seemingly irreconcilable ideas uh, find a uh, further explanation here in the book of Romans. And so I'll invite you to look at Romans chapter 7 um, for just a moment. Um, and in particular, we'll start in verse 7. So Romans 7, verse 7. It's a lot of talking here this time, so I'm going to go ahead and take a little sip here. But here we go, Romans 7, verse 7, where Paul says, But what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, You shall not covet. But sin, taking the opportunity or taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire, for apart from the law, sin was dead. Uh, In other words, it had no effect on me if I didn't know it. If I didn't know the law, then I couldn't be condemned by it. Uh, And it couldn't, uh, well, he'll go on to say, I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. And the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and it killed me. Therefore, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and just and good. Uh, Here's what Paul is beginning to say. We'll look at, uh, really, starting in verse 13 here in just a second, too. 
Uh, well, let me let me let me go ahead and just read uh, verse thirteen to eighteen, then I'll come back. Uh, has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful or exceedingly obvious, uh, is essentially what he's talking about there. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law, that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present within me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil that I will not to do, that I practice." Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. He's not condoning sin. He's just simply speaking of the two natures doing battle against each other now. I find then a law that evil is present within me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. There is therefore now, verse uh, 1 of chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And uh, some manuscripts include, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Uh, Same sentiment is down there in verse 4 as well. So what is all of that about? I'll encourage you to read it again and again and again. Uh, but I'll give you the, 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 what, what he's talking about here. The law is good. It's holy. It's just. It always has been. It always will be. It demonstrates, it expresses, uh, it reflects the, the glory of God and all of his holiness and purity. It is lofty and beautiful and exceptional and unattainable. And so therefore, when the law is given, it does a couple of things. It, 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 in the flesh, in both cases, it, it kills me because it calls out what is sin in my life. I would not have known it if God had not made it known. Yes, I have my conscience, but my conscience can be a little fuzzy regarding specifics, but the law is incredibly specific. And so therefore, if it says you shall not covet or murder or lust or, uh, or, or move the ancient landmarks and whatever the various things that the law will talk about, it is so specific, it is unavoidable. And so therefore, it condemns me. On the other hand, it also gives me a lofty goal in my flesh to feel that I can shoot for. And this is also part of what Paul is saying. In my flesh, I feel as though I can do my best to live this out. However, I constantly come up against the wall of my flesh that will not permit me to live that way. Again, I am born in sin. I have no capacity. Even with my new nature, as Paul alludes to here, I still wrestle against the flesh. It's not like my flesh disappears, but I, I, I fight it in the spirit, uh, the, the inner man, as he refers to, in my mind, the idea of being a, the new creation in Christ is fighting against the flesh that still exists in my body. And that's why he can say, with my flesh, I continually battle with this thing. But in my, in my mind, in the inner man, I am, I am free. There's no condemnation because ultimately I'm in Christ, but I acknowledge that I am still doing battle with this. So to answer your question, it's not that the law has been uh, destroyed, 
But in terms of our misunderstanding, that misunderstanding of what the law's purpose is should by all means be done away with. Uh, Our thinking of it as a source of our becoming righteous, as a path to righteousness if we follow it well enough, we can't and no one ever has except for Christ himself. And so therefore the understanding, or the thought I should say, not the understanding, but the misunderstanding that the law brings me right uh, to a level of righteousness, that I am have a right standing before God because of my obedience to his law, that kind of thinking is completely out. Um, and again, this is Paul, who if anyone ever lived a righteous life in, by externals, somebody who by his own boasting, you know, was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was somebody that, um, that, that obeyed the law. And what that clearly had to have meant was that when he violated, he did the offerings, he did the sacrifices, he did the, the washings and such. He did all that he was supposed to do in accordance with the law to make that right. He didn't abide sin in his life and that kind of thing. But all of these things he would go on to say, I count as rubbish uh, compared to the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, Philippians chapter three. So um, so when we talk about the law being done away with, we need to make sure we understand that the law's purpose was never to make one righteous. And so it is that misunderstanding that needs to be done away with. The law has never been. It is the standard by which we are judged, but now Christ has taken our judgment. And so therefore the law is now rendered inoperable because Christ himself has come to fulfill it, to satisfy it. As as Paul said, the enmity based on the law requirements has been abolished, has been rendered inoperative now because of the finished work of Christ. And that's why Paul, just to close this thought out, um, can say in Ephesians, matter of fact, again, turn with me, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 21, uh, where it says here that... um, uh, uh, Ephesians, I'm sorry, uh, Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. Um, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And then Galatians 2, 21 again. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness came through the law, then Christ died for nothing, needlessly. And that's what the term speaks of. And so, uh, in the conversation I had with uh, Rosen Yah in uh, the comment section of that video on the uh, uh, the Israel's possession of that red half of that prophecy update, um, his call to you know uh, be part of the covenant and you'll you'll not perish. Well, uh, if by that he meant the new covenant, the idea of the covenant of grace that uh, uh, through the finished work of Christ, then obviously I could not agree more. And that helps us see through the proper lens the purpose of the law and everything in regard you know, to speak into the question that you asked. Uh, and so, um, and then, uh, um, you know, for us to understand the gospel in that light, the bad news first, we are dead in sin. We are violators of the law. We are sinners. Um, and that Christ, therefore, the good news that Christ came and paid that debt, past, present, and future. Paul saying he took that handwriting of transgressions that was against us, contrary to us, and he nailed it to the cross, Colossians 2. The idea here that we are now set free. And if anyone ever accuses us, uh, if Satan himself accused us of, of those sins that we were clearly guilty of in that, we can hold up as, as the freed prisoner with his document uh, sealed to tell us die, paid in full, which incidentally is the same thing Jesus said on the cross when he said it is finished, to tell us die, the idea that it is paid in full. And as we started, uh, like as we said when we started, if it is paid in full, there is nothing left to pay. 
And so therefore, the Christian's life, the follower of Christ, his life is one that is lived out in thanksgiving for what has already been accomplished in Christ. It is not living out to earn something that does, to earn our righteousness or our right standing with God. That issue was settled at the cross in the person of Christ. When he took our sins upon himself, he bore them, even as Paul would say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Again, like Paul would say in, in Romans 4, blessed is the quoting from David, uh, blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. And so this is an imputational transaction that takes place and is received by faith in the one to whom the promise of Abraham was made, to his seed, that is Christ. So, a lot of theology there, uh, uh, and uh, and I, I do hope that it is of value, and I, I do hope it explains certainly what my position is and what I meant when I said what I did say in, uh, in that previous podcast. Uh, again, this is a topic I never get tired of talking about, because uh, there is a lot of activity online and in churches now where there's this attempt to try and blend the law and grace. But if you add anything to grace, it is no longer grace. It is wages. Well, then if you really want what you deserve, then I don't want to be standing in your shoes. I I, I want grace. I want mercy. I, I don't want justice, really, for me. Justice would mean I'm banished forever. But Jesus, our advocate before the Father, our propitiation, the one who satisfied the righteous judgment of God against sin and even upon sinners, he took that upon himself on our behalf. And therefore, we know that we stand free and forgiven in God's sight. And this is all what grace is about. Uh, And how can we not live lives of thanksgiving if we understand that, the bad news and the good news? If we understand those things, how can we not respond in loving obedience uh, to him. You know, Jesus could say, if you love me, you'll obey my commands, right? How could we not if we know what he's accomplished for us? And so therefore, a life lived for Jesus, loving the, the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and loving our neighbor as, himself, as, as ourselves, as Jesus summarized the law uh, together, that becomes the natural outward response of one who has been redeemed and one who understands the true depth of God's grace. I hope you do. And I I do hope that this was helpful in that regard. So Father, we do thank you for giving us this opportunity to consider these things. And I do pray for any who wrestle with the idea of grace, that somehow they carry with them the burden of their sin, the the sense of their their ineligibility, their, their, uh, their fallenness, Father, we thank you that the good news sweeps into that dark place and brings the light of truth, that the gospel, in fact, is the good news of Christ having taken all of our sin, past, present, and future, and has nailed it to the cross. And now we are free and forgiven, truly reconciled thoroughly. And Father, we just pray that, uh, Father, that we would never make the mistake of trying to blend the law into that, that somehow, even as Paul said to these same Galatians, that which you began in the Spirit are you now trying to perfect in the flesh. Help us never to make that mistake and think that even though Jesus died for my sins, I somehow now need to work to keep it. Father, if that is the case, then it's not the gospel at all, certainly not the one the Bible teaches. But how could that even be considered good news? Father, we thank you and praise you that it's not on our shoulders, but rather he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And if we will believe this, if we will put our trust in him, God in the flesh, God incarnate who took our sin upon himself, 
died, was buried, and rose again the third day, and now ever lives to make intercession for us, Father. We will believe in him, uh, both who he is and what he did. Even as uh, Paul would say, if we confess with our mouths Christ is Lord and believe in our hearts God raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. Thank you, Father. We love you and praise you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, again, I always appreciate the questions when they arise. And uh, certainly, Guy, I appreciate your question as well. And uh, if you have questions and you want to share them, you can do so on our YouTube channel in the comments section below the videos. Uh, I try to see all of those. I try to follow up on as many as I can. Uh, Usually, if uh, uh, a question like this comes up or a question that uh, typically, just if you're asking a question, I, I always have to wonder if maybe others aren't maybe considering the same things. And so oftentimes I'll address them in a post just so I can speak a little bit more to it. I'm not really comfortable writing all that out and everything. It'd take me all day to write out what I just said. So uh, I, I hope that this is a better means of communicating that. But um, but if you do want, I have a question, feel free to share it there. Again, the comments section, you can go to our church's website and uh, you can email me there, info at calvarychapelfranklin.com. Or you can go to my website at parsonspad.com. Dot com as well. So thank you for watching, for listening, coming along, and uh, and spending time in the Word as we do. I'm so thankful to be able to have this opportunity to, uh, uh, to do this with you all. So thank you so much. God bless you. And until we uh, post again or meet again or here, there, in the air, if we uh, see each other before this day is done, uh, until that point, you know, may the Lord bless and keep you and make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you and give you peace forever. Amen.